phenomenal, Casey. Huh? That was incredible. Was that awesome? That was incredible, buddy. Jane, I found this bird out on these open hillsides. And there was a dip. And we figured if we could get about right here and quickly stab our decoys, maybe we stand a chance. <clears throat> we came out here and stabbed and kept that bird up there, kept gobbling. And then finally I started hearing this bird down here a little bit. Next thing I could hear, here he came. Spun around, gave me a shot from the back. One nice clean shot. Bird didn't even know what really happened. It's just a awesome, awesome Tom. This is my Gould, man. Thanks, Congratulations. bud. Congratulations. Jay, bird. You couldn't have been more than 15 yards? Uh, 12, 15 yards. You had a good view. Incredible video. Just an awesome hunt. Beautiful birds, huh? <laughs> they're so beautiful and they're so vocal. Yeah. They're just awesome. Beautiful. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources, and Chris is getting ready for the opening day of the youth season in Kansas. Chris, how you doing? Doing well, my friend. How are you? Good. Where have I caught you tonight? Uh, sitting on a hill overlooking a portion of our river bottom trying to figure out where these birds want to settle into so that way yeah like I like you just said yeah our season starts tomorrow however uh, the the two little girls the youth season kicks off but the two little girls won't be actually starting to hunt until Monday morning but I want to try to pin these birds down so that way Monday morning we can walk into the blind and, and get set up and hopefully get at least two if not three or four birds on the ground the, the weather's been crappy and so monday is going to be the only nice day that they've got so i'd really like to capitalize on it so we'll see i was going to ask you it seemed like you had some decent days uh last time we talked you were praying for moisture what has happened since we talked and and how did the plots and stuff that you did uh put out how have they come up you know what kind of status are we at right now <laughs> well it's kind of a big stag. Yeah, you're right. We we did. That next rainstorm that came through dumped three-quarters of an inch, and it was perfect. I mean, it came across over about a 36-hour uh, period, so it just soaked in beautifully. It was exactly what we wanted. So the, I've, I had a mix of, of cool-season plots of winter wheat and, and um, clover. Well, there was some separate food plots, and then I had a long strip of about a third of a mile of a field edge on the river bottom that was all planted in it, and the turkeys were just absolutely hammering it. However, long story short, it, it's a field edge that's actively going to be planted into corn this year, and the landowner contracts the herbicide work out to an ag services provider who last year made a couple mistakes, and missed a bunch. So this year, apparently, he was a little oversensitive because he was supposed to spray fertilizer, which is no problem. It would have helped the, the wheat. He was supposed to spray um, some, it's basically called a pre-emergent herbicide. Basically, it keeps all annual things from popping out of the ground and, and growing. It's a preventive maintenance type of herbicide. That would have been fine. That the, the wheat would have been just fine with that. Well, 
apparently he got out here, did his, did his recon, and looked at the field and saw green strips out in the field and was like, well, I might as well put in a general herbicide. He put in a general herbicide and just nuked the piss out of the entire <laughs> strip of food. Uh, I Oh, I was not a happy camper, but it is that's that's one of the challenges we have out here is, is dealing with you know multiple people, multiple parties, just different you know communication is it's it's just a struggle. But so, I'm I'm sitting here looking at that piece of ground right now, and, and maybe it's for the best. Maybe this cool this cool weather, this all of a sudden it really turned cool these past several days. Um, it's kind of slow the uptake, so it's still green, but it's you can see it's starting to turn yellow green, so it's not going to last very long. So, <laughs> so what's it going to do to your birds that were hammering it? Have, have they moved over, or you think you? Got oh yeah, they're, they're, that's that's really right now the challenge that I've got. Is, and we've talked about this before, and, and I'm going to I'm going to kick off here soon a new YouTube series kind of highlighting some of what Rural Hunting Resources is doing from a habitat management standpoint out here in northwest Kansas. You know, you are friends with Bill Winky. I, I really love Bill's, you know, Midwest Whitetails is a probably, both Midwest Whitetails, Bill Winky and Dr. Grant Woods of Growing Deer TV are probably the two, uh, two of the nation's premier whitetail turkey habitat uh, folks that are on social media and, and have a YouTube channel and TV show and they're, they're a wealth of knowledge but some of the things that they are dealing with or less I guess let me for that some of the things that I'm dealing with it's not even in the same realm we I cannot physically do some of the things a lot of the things that they talk about because we don't have the moisture cycle we don't have the type of soils we don't have, we, if we've got more of a weed issue and some of the other issues that we've got to deal with. So I'm going to start talking about that a little bit more. I'm going to kick that series off here in a few weeks. But one of the things, and you and I have talked about this in past, about winter wheat is king. All right, the, the birds are coming off of the winter. They've been flocked up. It's, we're talking real grantor. They get huge flocks and they move long distances. So they'll get those huge flocks in the winter and they'll, they'll stack in on like corn stubble, or uh, maybe milo or sorghum stubble, anything that's got a grain that they can pick that has a high carbohydrate, high fat level, it just helps them get to the winter. But when we start transitioning into the spring like we are now, those hens are going to seek out a high-protein food. They need high. They need the protein for it to, to lay eggs. So they're searching. They're out there. They're, I mean, they're, the flocks are starting to bust up. It almost seems like they might be a touch early, which makes sense given how mild of a winter we've had. Uh, I'm guessing they're, you know, they might even be close to a week early on their behavior cycle. They're already starting to bust up pretty good. But they're moving, and they're moving hard because we just, there's just no money in winter wheat anymore. You, there's, the commodity prices are so piss poor that... You know, you can't even pencil in a profit. So a lot of landowners are not growing wheat. They're all focusing on more summer crops like corn and soybean. So that means that the high-protein food, especially on these linear corridors, is few and far between. And so those birds are just ranging far and wide searching for the best protein source. And so until they figure out where those plots are or those fields, or in my case, you got a couple food plots still that are viable, um, until they find them and they, until they get settled in, 
Uh, it's going to be kind of a round robin over here the next five guess a week to maybe ten days while we try to figure out what's going on and where they're going to settle. Interesting. Uh, it's it's always something, isn't it? Uh, get, getting a little bit of inconsistency with your mic, so um, I'll okay. try and speak more into it. Um, you know, every year it's something different that you have to deal with, but in general, those rios they do travel quite a bit um, over the next 60 days or at least 45 days with the liberal season that Kansas has, basically starting from April 1st all the way to May 31st, I believe, yeah. um, you know, 60-day yep. season. Uh, how likely is it that you will be seeing birds that will then be gone and then new birds that, you know, will venture onto the property? Or is it more of a circular where birds just start, you know, rotating and maybe a bird's gone for a week and he's back? Um, talk a little bit about, you know, the, the residency of the birds and the migratory where they're just kind of moving all over um, yeah. looking for that food source. Yeah, no, you, you hit it. Um, right now, the, the birds are busting out of their flocks. And so it's not uncommon, like, for instance, two days ago, uh, there was eight big mature birds, big mature gobblers with probably eight hens. And then 500 yards down the river bottom, here were three big mature toms with maybe another four or five hens. And then another mile down the river bottom, here's another group and another group. And so right now, you'll have these groups, and you'll it's very common to find multiple toms in with the hen groups. Here and then today, that group of eight is now a group of three, and the group of three originally was now is just now one tom. The hens are still there, but those toms have left, and some of the hens are, are gone. So right now you're going to have this mixing where it's just all over the map. And then the hens are going to pretty much figure out where they want to be, and the dominant birds, the, the mature gobblers in those groups are going to figure out their pecking order, and they're going to, they're going to get settled in. So I'm guessing by the about the end of the first week of April, we'll have almost a static situation where the hens that are in a, that are occupying a certain little area on a river bottom are going to stay, and the gobblers that are locked down with those hens are going to stay. You'll probably have those two-year-old birds that are going to be floating up and down, going back and forth between those hen groups. But once that last for about a week to 10 days or so those hens breed once those hens actually start heading off to nest that's when we see that second pulse to where all of a sudden now maybe a gobbler only had two or three hens well he's bred them now they've laid eggs over the course of 7 10 12 14 days now they start moving off now we're talking mid to, to that third week of april now all of a sudden we've got hens going off to nest and those gobblers start wandering, they start searching, they start looking for, for hens that are still receptive. You'll get that second spike in, in gobbling activity. And then for us, usually, if the weather holds, usually by the end of April, boy, things start really winding down into where you start getting into that first part of May, you're really struggling, you're really hoping to find one or two gobblers that are still interested, that are still talking, and by the time, for us, in our area, by the time you hit mid-May, you're almost trying to hunt summer mode gobblers. They're already starting to get, they're already getting grouped back up in their bachelor groups. They're not gobbling as much. They're not interested in calls as much. They're just doing their own thing. So it, 
you know, we're talking about, you know, four weeks to maybe six weeks, but man, oh man, that the different behavior cycles in those weeks can drastically change from one day to the next. And in one day you're on a, you know, like right now where they're, they're grouped up and they're busting up, they're chasing each other, they're fighting, they're, they're running around. And then three days later, boom, they're locked down. They don't want nothing to do with anybody. And half the birds that you were looking forward to going and chasing are gone. They're off somewhere. Who knows where? So. And Chris, um, those Rios, are, are you strictly Rios and you're part of it? You don't have any Easterns at all near you, do you? No, correct. We're just strictly Rios. Okay. Um, and then, so in essence, though, there are parts of Kansas where, I mean, they start April 1st and they, they actually have some pretty good action. How much of that do you think is, um, you know, some of the Eastern turkey influence in those birds whether they be hybrid or, you know, a mix of Rios and Easterns running in the same, you know, country, or, or do you feel like it's, you know, specifically for the Rios that, you know, that, that they just don't run that long of a cycle, or is it the, the topography and the terrain and, and the vegetation and such? You know, I don't know. That's actually a pretty good question. I don't know. I guess I would have to say it's, you know, <laughs> You can pretty much across the board see a cycle from Easterns, Rios, Merriams to Goulds to whatever. I mean, they, all the birds kind of go through a similar cycle, but they might have a different timing. The photo period is the same. The reproductive cycle is generally the same. The only thing I can say is that it's probably going to do more with the habitat that they're in. Maybe it's maybe it'll do more with the habitat and, and the food that they're getting on. Maybe the population dynamics. You know, I that's an interesting that, that would be an interesting study to see and you know kind of compare uh, certain areas. You know, if we go east in Kansas to where we start hitting the eastern uh, turkeys, some species of turkeys, you're talking about a completely different habitat profile. You're talking a lot more timber, a lot more open. You know, you, you just your typical eastern type habitats where a lot of timber with these patchy you know, agri-field, agriculture fields mixed in between with all sorts of different agriculture. Um, Mike, I, I would have to say that it's probably more related to the habitats of those birds in and the population dynamics uh, of the birds. We, we do, I say that, these past two years have been hard. We, we've not had great pulp survival these past two years. We've had some really brutal bad weather right about the time that the poults are hatching and, and they're maybe a couple days old and all of a sudden, you know, like last year we got a two-foot snowstorm. They just buried everything. So we typically, however, really do run uh, almost a one-to-one -one ratio on our toms to hens. And so I think a hen has no problem out here getting bred when she wants to braid it unless raccoons or possums or skunks or whatever raid her nest and destroy her nest she basically lays that clutch it's however you know how many many eggs that she wants to lay 10 12 14 eggs over the, that course of 10 12 14 days and once she's done and she's done i mean boom there we are so i think it's probably more habitat and food Chris, um, what's new to your arsenal this year as far as have you added any new calls or have you added any new equipment or, or anything uh, that, that is different for you 
um, from from years past? Well, from a from an equipment standpoint, not much. I, I'm I'm going to go ahead and play with a bunch of uh, Phelps game calls, turkey calls this year. I haven't even really had a chance to wade into them yet and really pick them apart, but they sound pretty good so far. So I'm gonna I'm gonna play with Phelps game calls, mouth diaphragms. If anybody's listening, it's basically he's got a variety pop of six different mouth diaphragms, and then he's got one uh, special one that you know off to the side that I, I bought all seven of them so i'm going to play with those but so from a decoy standpoint i still have my regular setup i've got my avian x hand decoys my avian x uh jake decoy uh, quarter struck jake decoy and i've got my killer b you know pretty much killer b strutter decoys you know, i sent you a picture early i just need to touch up the paint job i've got to clean them up but really steel the big thing, this is part of what I'm sitting up here doing right now, the big change for me, uh, aside from the, the crop rotation and, and trying to, you know, figure out where these birds want to settle into, uh, we have a major change on, on one of our, ch- the biggest chunk of ground that we have on the river bottom, but the, there's a new owner. It, it sold, or it's in the process of selling. And so we have a new landowner. And that landowner wants to change. He wants to convert everything into a wildlife management type of deal. So, some of the things that we did in the past, or some of the limitations we had in the past, now are no longer limitations. So, so the sky's the limit on what we can do down there. But and this is this is a longer discussion. It's kind of a funny. But we have an outfitter that moved in a couple years ago and hunts. Uh, a neighboring property. Well, let's just cut to the chase and say he knows darn well that we we manage our properties, and he has his blind. He, he's progressively over the past couple of years moved his hunters progressively closer and closer and closer to the fence to our our better habitat. So he's got his turkey ground blind as close to one of the roost sites as he possibly can. Well. Because of this new owner, because of the land management changes, because of some of the things that we're doing out here, we really, it doesn't make sense for us to treat that one chunk of ground as a sanctuary anymore and just clean up. Every time, you know, we, we, we produce the animals, we, we're, we're doing the food plants, we're doing the habitat groups, we're doing the supplemental, you know, meaningful supplemental feeding, we're doing the population monitoring, we're doing the surveys, we're we're doing all that. I'm losing but you a little bit. this particular end of the of the field of the property, we never we use it as a sanctuary. Meanwhile, this guy's over there just cleaning house. So we're, I'm losing we're your audio. I'm losing your year. audio. I'm losing your audio okay. just a little bit. Oh, that's probably just a cell reception up here. Like I said, I'm sitting up on top of the hill above the river bottom. But so anyway, long story short, we're gonna we're gonna flip the script a little bit, and we're gonna start hunting that chunk of ground where we haven't hunted it as much in the past so it's it's going to be an interesting dynamic for this year that's sure. <laughs> <laughs> i don't i think and I'll, and I'll share some more of this later but uh be, for that management purpose i did have to go i the landowner wanted me to put some signs up and because we've had some trespass issues from some of his hunters that you know you know, they're out there hunting, and they hear the birds in the river bottom, and they don't think anybody's around, or they don't think anybody's watching, and sure enough, here they come across the fence, they're looking, and 
we haven't made it a big deal so far, but you know the new landowner said, "Well, I want I want to have some signs up there, and let's let's go ahead and nip this in the bud." So, I put up a sign the other day, and <laughs> the, the outfitter watched me do it, and he wasn't happy. I don't. <laughs> 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 That's what you get when you hunt somebody's fence slide, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Uh, um. So what's going to be, what do you think is going to be the setup for, so tomorrow's opening day, but it's also Easter Sunday. Uh, yeah. Your hunters don't get in until tomorrow night, so you're actually going to hunt uh, the following day. Um, what is going to be, in your mind, how do you think it's going to play out as far as strategy and where you're going to set up and you know what type of situation is it going to be? Well, uh, that's what I'm doing right now. I've got two groups that seem like they're settled. Uh, but and I've got three ground lines placed in strategic locations where I think I can capitalize on either of the two groups in one of the three places. I'm just trying to pin down which one I want to go to Monday morning. I think from a decoy standpoint, I'm going to go ahead and start off with what we talked about before, what I call that whipping boy setup, strutter, quarter strut, quarter strut Jake, and then several hens. Um, I'm going to feel free to call. The birds have been talking quite a bit. So I'm going to just start out just like I normally do with an early season setup, with that whipping boy setup, and we're going to we'll evaluate from there. I think there's one or two birds on the Far East. I think I, I don't want to jinx myself, but fingers crossed, I think we can get him. I think we can, I think we can kill him. The question is, is that the second group, they're, jumping back and forth between two different ground blinds, and they seem to have a random pattern. So if I can pin those down, I think we may be able to hit the one blind in the morning, get at least one, if not two birds on the ground, and then we've got a day and a half to try to get each of the two girls uh, their second bird. And we're talking young, young little, just little girls. They're, they're cute as buttons, but uh, one of them hunted with me a couple years ago. She had to deal with some horrible weather late season, so... She had some opportunities, but just did not come away with a bird. So, man, I just really want her to be able to get a turkey and her and her sister get a turkey this year. We'll see. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's so cool. I can't wait to see your video on that. I want to take just a quick second and thank the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider for their title sponsorship of the podcast and remind the listeners if you're not already a member, you can go to gohunt.com forward slash insider, follow the blue uh, join now button, and use the J. Scott promo code. You're going to get a $50 GoHunt Gear Shop gift card by signing up immediately. also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Make sure to check out kuiu.com, kuyu.com. Uh, they make the best ultralight hunting gear on the market today. Uh, the Outdoorsman's, 1-800-291-8065 or Outdoorsman's.com. If you use the J. Scott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. And then Phonescope.com, use the J. Scott 16 promo code, and you're going to get a 10% discount there on the Phonescope adapters, which adapts any uh, optic to any uh, uh, cell phone. Uh, Chris? You, you talk about having two uh, young uh, gals coming to hunt. Uh, last year you were down uh, on the Goulds hunt with me, and we had Bryce Oliver, a 10-year-old, uh, yeah. who was up to bat first, and his dad really wanted him to get a turkey. Um, we had a good situation, and we went in an afternoon hunt. Um, talk a little bit about when you're hunting with 
either A, youth hunters, or B, new hunters, how important is it, like, I, I heard you on the video, get your gun up, okay, start aiming, okay, pull the trigger, shoot them. Talk a little bit about your strategy when you're hunting uh, with with either new hunters or youth in, in trying to, you know, teach them what they're supposed to be doing, but not only that, kind of give them a, a brain trigger to, to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. For, for me, I really do. I, you know, I think if you're dealing with kids or new hunters, if you can get them a ground blind to start, that's huge. Because now th there's a lot less pressure on, you know, staying still, uh, watching your movement, and if you need to coach them into a better position or just, you know, last-minute adjustment, if the ground blind allows you to get away with that stuff that they're not used to being a veteran hunter uh, right off the bat. So having a ground blind, I think, is huge. And then absolutely having someone that now, whether this is a parent or whether you're talking about, you know, someone like you or me, that, that are you know, anybody that's mentoring a, a hunter or guiding a hunter, here's the thing. So parents, guides, mentors, remember these these youngsters, this is their first, a lot of times it's going to be their first time. You may have been at the range with them quite a bit, but if you think about what you did at the range, you are coaching them at the range. You are telling them when to load. You are telling them when to click the safety off. You are telling them to watch their breathing. You are telling them to watch, the, you know, to watch their sight picture and get the beat on it. You're telling them to squeeze the trigger. You're oftentimes telling them when to squeeze the trigger. You are coaching them actively through the whole process. Well, they get hardwired either to think and, and wait for that or subconsciously they're, they still want that type of feedback. And so I've seen and we saw it, you know, Jay, you and I last year, and I've seen it numerous times with my sub where the parent, you know, gets out there and they're so excited about the hunt that they want to video it or they want to watch, they completely forget that their child or the youngster that they're bringing is waiting for them to tell them, okay, get your gun up. They're waiting for them to say, okay, breathe. Here's, the, here's how you get your sight picture. Okay, is it steady? Can you see him? Yes. Are, do you feel comfortable? Yes. All right, go ahead and click your safety off. Are you good? Yes. Okay, do you have a good sight picture? Yep. If he's standing still for you, can you see it? Yep. All right, go ahead and squeeze the trigger. I've literally had kids ask me, can I shoot him now? Yes. Go ahead and shoot him now. Okay. Now? Yes. You're good to go right now. I mean, like three or four times, they, they just want to get it right there. They love being there. They want to be on the hunt. They, but in the back of their mind, they also don't want to let you down or the adults down that have done this. And so sometimes they need a little extra coaching, I think. Just being cognizant of that. Get him in a ground blind. Get him in a good setup where the, where the birds are going to come in and work. But get him in a ground blind and just don't forget to coach him, walk him through it. And the other thing, too, is don't get hung up on beard length or spur length. I've literally had a bird behind the blind, 11-inch beard. I'm waiting for this thing to swing around. And meanwhile, there's four shakes beating up on a decoy and the little kid that I was with and was hunting or taking, he's like, I can shoot these, right? I'm like, yeah, but just wait. There's a bigger one coming. He's like, but these, but these, I can shoot these, right? Yep, yep, but there's a bigger bird coming. Just wait. He's like, but these are legal, right? But I was like, you know, this, this, this little voice in your head that, 
you know, get stopped upside the head. I was like, yes, you can. I, was, I, I said, yes, you can. Boom! He tried to shake it. He was just as happy about shooting the dick as he would have been shooting an 11-inch beard. He didn't care. He just wanted to shoot a bird. If the birds were in front of him, he had a clear shot, and he wanted to take it. So enjoy the hunt with them, and just don't forget that it's their hunt, and you need to be there with them to coach them through it. Good stuff, really good stuff. I want to finish uh, tonight and let you uh, roost these birds, uh, but give a few tips and maybe talk a little bit about your position is up on a high point. What is the reason for that? And, you know, how do you monitor these birds as far as, you know, getting them roosted and, and how much time do you spend, you know, how many days in advance, how much intel are you trying to gather? The more intel you've got, the better you're, you, you're going to be. Um, so I've literally, for the past week, it's just been nothing but mornings and nights, sitting up on a high spot or, listen, or sitting in a place where I can hear uh, a long distance, but I also in a strategic location where I can pinpoint, you know, okay, so when I hear a bird, you know, sound off, I can, I can from a geographic standpoint, I can go, okay, he's in that corner or he's in that big set of trees there. I can pinpoint where he's sounding off from, but if I can get to a place where I can watch a good chunk of the river bottom, and even more importantly, I can hear them on the roost, but I can watch them pitch out. If I can watch them pitch out, I watch them where they hit the ground, then I sit and watch what they do. They might mill around for 30 minutes or maybe an hour, but maybe this particular group every single time mills around underneath the roost for 30 minutes but then always heads east. All right, well, if I know that, then I have a game plan. Okay, I know where I need to set the blind or I, need, I know where I need to make my first initial play, but if it doesn't work or if I can't get under the roost or if I can't get on them for some reason, I know that they're going to head a particular direction. I can kind of cut them off. So that's what I'm doing right now. I try to get to a vantage point where I can literally watch their feet hit the ground or I can watch them fly up at night. I want to know where they're going to. I want to know where they're coming from. So that way I, I know I've got a bigger picture on what their actual daily activity cycle looks like. Where are they roosted, but where are they going in the morning and in the evening? Where are they coming back from? Is it the same spot that they disappeared into? Or, like you said earlier, are they making a big loop? Are they making this, this gigantic circular loop around the river bottom and button-hooking around back to the roost at night? If I've got that information, it makes a big difference on how I position myself or hunters uh, throughout the day, whether we're doing a morning set, whether we're doing a midday set, whether we're doing evening, or whether we're dealing with, you know, sometimes it's just high winds. You know, we're going to be dealing with a couple situations where we have high winds. One of them is right now. So where are those birds going to get in out of that wind? Where are those protected pockets? Where are they using? And just put all those puzzle pieces together so when it's game time, we can walk right in, set up a set, and, and put some birds on the ground. With that being said, you said you mentioned something there that struck a chord with me, and that is um, I like to see if you can get and, and look at some country long enough over enough days and see where the birds, where they go to pitch up into their roost tree. In other words, if you get a real consistent spot where they, you know, they're flying into the roost off of a certain ridge 
or if it's flat ground, you know, they usually come right here, they mill around, and then they fly from this exact location. Wouldn't that also be a good thing for an afternoon set to have your blind where you know that at some point in time before they fly up, they are going to come uh, right to that point? And then, and then also in the morning you said you want to know where their feet first hit the ground. If you can watch a field or a meadow or a ridge or, or you know, whatever terrain you're hunting, whatever kind of birds, if you can see exactly they pitch out of the, the, you know, in the same direction and they always land in the same spot, that creates a, a, a place of consistency where you can, you know, become more efficient with your setup. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely agree. Now, here's, here's Jay for something for you um, and given the fact that especially, you know, when we were down in Mexico last year, you're talking ghouls, you're talking those mountain birds. And if you're talking Merriam's, the same thing, those mountain birds. Well, there's a couple little things, you know, that are a little different from mountain birds to flatland birds. The principles are the same. However, what are the things that you, you two things that you, you said struck me? All right, for instance, yes, what you're talking about, where those birds fly up to roost in the evening, they might pitch off of a ridge or a certain little bluff, or, or they might fly up from the same spot every evening, and that's a great place to get set up for in the afternoon and the early evening. Now, most places that I know of that allow you to turkey hunt in the evening, usually legal shooting light ends at sunset. Usually it's not 30 minutes after like deer and elk. It's usually at sunset. Well, in the mountains, actual technical sunset might be later, depending on what side of the ridge you're on. If you're in the shady, dark side of the ridge, sunset may be like, say, 8 p.m., but those birds might actually be flying, you know, stage, staging and getting ready to fly up maybe quarter till to where you can actually get set up underneath that roost and, and sluice them or either call them in or sluice them on their way back to the roost and still be inside legal shooting light. Out here in the flatlands, we actually have just the opposite. That's part of the reason why I want to know where they're coming from because a lot of times they are not at their particular fly-up spot by sunset, they might show up 15 minutes after sunset and then fly up, but it's, it's after legal shooting light. So we need to position ourselves out here where they're coming from and intercept them before they get there. Otherwise, we run out of, uh, out of daylight, and then, or legal shooting light, I should say. Now, the other yeah. thing that you said is about, you know, they like, especially those mountain birds, they like to pitch off and land. Oftentimes on that upslope side, they'll, they'll pitch out to the shortest direction. Sometimes it's an open patch that's down in the valley bottom below or whatever. But out here, if you sometimes these roost trees are in relatively open habitats to where they will pitch out with their face into the wind. So if, if one night, you know, you've got a north wind, the next morning they'll pitch out to the north. They'll just sail with their face into the wind. If all of a sudden the next night the, the wind switches and comes out of the south, well, tomorrow morning, guess what? They're pitching to the south. And so because some of the property boundaries are along these tree corridors, 
sometimes, depending on what the weather's doing, they might either pitch out onto you or they may pitch out onto a neighbor. If, if you happen to own both sides of, the, of that corridor, well, you've got a little advantage. But understanding that they might put their face into the wind, that can absolutely dictate where you set up the next morning. So pay attention to those things as well. Great tips there. Great stuff. Uh, Chris, as always, it's awesome having you on. Uh, hope you get some birds roosted tonight, and I'll be watching your Instagram and Facebook for uh, your updates on your hunts. Um, why don't you let the listeners know how they can find you and follow you, and uh, just uh, appreciate uh, all the uh, info that you always give us. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. I, I love coming on and talking with you, and uh, and I appreciate all the feedback folks have been sending me. I and keep it up. I, I like to hear back from you guys and gals. But, no, as always, everything of ours is just row hunting resources, R-O-E, hunting resources. If the, the website's rowhuntingresources.com, our YouTube channels, Row Hunting Resources, Instagram, Row Hunting Resources, Facebook, same thing. So just if you want to if you want to follow along and, and live vicariously through <laughs> me out here and, and what we're doing this turkey season, to jump on, follow, and uh, yeah, come along for the ride because I think it's going to be a good season. It's going to be a tricky season. It's still dry. Um, we're still dealing with the drought, and we've got a different crop rotation. We've got some different neighboring issues, but. Uh, we're going to have fun. We're going to have fun doing it. We're going to have a bunch of different hunters, a lot of first-timers this year. So it's going to be a it's going to be an interesting ride. That's awesome. Well, we ought to plan on just doing a catch-up uh, after the youth hunters and just see how the season went down and, and get any tips and tidbits that you can give from what you learned. Um, and, it, you know, would you agree, Chris, that you are still, you know, as much as you know about turkeys and turkey hunting, Every situation, you end up learning something different. Oh, absolutely. even if even at the stage you're in now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yep. Good never, stuff. It, Good it, stuff. It, it, it never stop learning, and never just just soak it in. You never know if you just sit and watch. You never know what tiny, and it might just seem something so insignificant at the time, but then later on, it just it's the light switch that just clicks the light bulb on. And you're like, wait a minute, that is that that that's the key. And boom, it changes the entire paradigm of what you're doing or how you set up or how you call or the decoy set you use or whatever it is. Don't ever stop learning. Always pay attention and just soak every minute of it in. Awesome stuff, man. Well, knock them dead. Hope you uh, get some birds roosted, and I'll be watching for your success, okay? All right, brother. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.